1: You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness, like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears.
2: So I've, you know, like a lot of people, I've always been fascinated by the paranormal. You know, I've always, uh, I grew up reading ghost stories, you know, Hans Holzer, and all the greats and stuff. So I always had this fascination with it. I also had a grandfather who liked to tell creepy stories and things that had happened to him. So I just kind of grew up with that fascination with the supernatural that a lot of people have. But um, I myself, I've always kind of been a skeptic. You know, I say when a ghost walks up and shakes my hand, that's when I'll start believing in them. And so um, even though I I consider myself a skeptic i'm kind of open you know to um you know the paranormal i'd love to see a ghost one day uh but notwithstanding uh ghost stories are are fun you know ghost stories are are part of our culture um it's uh it's fun to be scared so i always tell people you don't need to actually believe in ghosts to enjoy a good ghost story and so i always had that kind of perspective. Well, in 1999, I bought uh, a house that was supposedly haunted. And uh, I'm from Wisconsin originally. I ended up in Louisville, Kentucky in the 90s to go to law school and grad school. And my plan was just to do my time and get out of town. I didn't really want to go to Louisville, Kentucky. Well, I ended up loving Louisville. It's kind of become my hometown. And I have spent half my life here now. But what really fascinated me about the city is there, uh, there's a historic preservation district, and when I moved to town and, and started going to the University of Louisville, I lived in this area that's just full of old Victorian mansions. It's called Old Louisville. It's one of the largest historic preservation districts in the country. You have 45 square blocks of old houses, roughly 1,400 uh, old homes and mansions. And most of them date from the 1880s and the 1890s. And um, most of them are Victorian houses. So some have said it's the largest Victorian neighborhood in the country. So you walk through the neighborhood, it's kind of like a time capsule. It's block after block after block of beautiful old uh, Victorian houses, most of them built of locally quarried limestone, locally produced red brick. And so the neighborhood itself was just kind of fascinating. And so in 1999, I had the chance and I actually bought a house. And my house was a small house compared to many in old Louisville. Uh, Mine was a little under 3,000, a little under 4,000 square feet, had seven bedrooms. It was a tall chateau-esque house that had belonged to a tobacco man at one time. And uh, it was on Third Street, which Back in the day, it was kind of like the old millionaire's row, so my house was small compared to a lot of uh, the nearby mansions. But um, I bought it, I moved in, and right before I moved in, the previous owner kind of uh, casually mentioned that if I bought the house, I'd get a ghost coming with it. I said, oh, yeah, really? What? And uh, she told me her resident ghost was a poltergeist they called uh, Lucy. She liked to walk around in the middle of the night on the second floor. She liked to tease cats and dogs if you had pets, and I did, and she liked to break things and kind of, you know, typical poltergeist things. And um, when Margaret, the woman who sold me the house, told me that, I just kind of shrugged it off. And she kind of got serious with me and she said, I know you think I'm crazy, but you're going to find out we've got a ghost here. Well, long story short, I moved into the house, and within a couple of months, all the strange things she said would happen, began to happen. Uh, Footsteps in the middle of the night on the second floor hallway, always between kind of three and four in the morning. And I discovered right away old houses, you know, make a lot of noise, but I wasn't hearing random, you know, creaks and groans. I was hearing what sounded like hard soled shoes, lightly stepping up and down the length of the hallway. And long story short, I never, saw a ghost that first year I was in the house. So I'm still kind of a skeptic, but everything short of experiencing an apparition, we had happened in the house. I saw things move on occasion. There were lots of strange noises and smells. People staying uh, with me, family coming down for the holidays or friends visiting, a couple of them said they had seen an actual apparition. I I didn't though. So. What happened is that first year in the house, and I was there for eight years, that kind of made me look at the neighborhood in a different light. And, you know, down in old Louisville, the average house has been around 135 years. So you've been around that long, you've got some stories to tell. And so I started, you know, meeting my neighbors and making friends down there and talking to other homeowners. And sure enough, they all had stories associated with their houses you some of them had old family stories and legends passed on others had you know would-be paranormal events take place in their houses and so what i did is i started uh, exploring the neighborhood and kind of seeking out the paranormal stories and the legends and that's what got me into writing about the neighborhood so i started um writing down these allegedly true cases of hauntings, kind of as a way to promote the neighborhood, to tout what was interesting about the neighborhood, you know, the Victorian history, the wonderful architecture. And uh, in the process, you know, talk about more, talk about, you know, the real life characters who lived there and kind of what made the neighborhood what it was. And that um, led to me writing my first book in 2005. it was well-received. People loved it. They wanted more ghost stories. So I did more research and I dug up another batch of stories I, uh, that came out in a second book. And then a couple of years later, a third book came out and then uh, people began wanting to see the places they were reading about. So we started a little tour company that takes people around the neighborhood to show off uh, the places as they were reading about in the book. And, uh, like 17 years later, my first book is still kind of doing well. Uh, what I did is several years ago because over time people got in touch with me and they said, Oh, the, the woman you wrote about in chapter six in your second book, that was my great grandmother. And here's her death certificate. Or they us say, uh, here's a picture of the house you wrote about in your first book. And so I got this new information. I found out there were little mistakes here and there, but what I did is I, I took all of those stories and the most popular ones, I kind of edited and updated and put in kind of a best of collection that came out a couple of years ago. It's called True Ghost Stories and Eerie Legends from America's Most Haunted Neighborhood. And what happened is over the last 10, 20 years, so many stories of uh, alleged hauntings have been surfacing that they've started calling Old Louisville America's most haunted neighborhood. They say you can't go more than half a block in the neighborhood before you come across uh, another reportedly haunted house. And so the books I've written about the the paranormal events in the neighborhood uh, are kind of uh, a way to showcase our most famous legends, our most famous cases of hauntings in the neighborhood. And um, that's the book we're talking about, true ghost stories and eerie legends in America's most haunted neighborhood. And that's Old Louisville.
1: I'll tell you, for one, the neighborhood sounds amazing. Really. It sounds like just right up my alley. It sounds exactly like Wilmington, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I just got back from there a couple of weeks ago and uh, Mm -hmm. also vacation there in October, but they have an area there where they are clearly, uh, prioritizing, um, the preservation of those old Victorian homes and they are just Mm -hmm. stunning. They're stunning. And, um, Louisville. I've been there one time many years ago, but I didn't know, you know, there was a section there of homes, old Victorian homes that people are really trying their best to preserve. I was going to ask you like what I what I didn't notice when I was visiting Wilmington was they they also have the plaque so they've they've researched the former owners of the houses so the you know you'll see a plaque on the house and say was owned by such and such you know a a historic figure i guess or someone of importance to that city is it that way
2: in louisville as well i mean do they have little yeah old louisville um there's there's a number of different neighborhood associations so different neighborhoods will do different neighborhood associations will do things for their members and then there's a number of just general historic um, markers in the neighborhood as well but um you know a lot of these are just they're places where people live and one end of the neighborhood that's where the university of louisville is so there's you know thousands and thousands of students so that part of the neighborhood you have more student housing you know a lot of these have been uh, turned into apartments and things but the core you know around millionaires row and then We have this gas lamp district called saint james court where the gas lights are on 24 hours a day you have this big beautiful uh richardsonian romanesque mansion called conrad's castle and that's supposedly haunted um those are kind of the epicenter of the neighborhood and uh, many of those have been you know taken back to being single family houses and um yeah a lot of people especially if they know A notable figure lives there. A lot of people have plaques on the outside of their houses. And um, the thing is, the neighborhood is just so big. Like I said, 45 square blocks. You just walk, you know, block after block after block. And there's all these, you know, wonderful houses. And like I said, a lot of them have good stories that go with them.
1: Sounds amazing! I'm going to, to make a trip up there. Um,
2: you're not that far either. No,
1: I'm not that far at all. I mean, Knoxville is yeah. just a
2: hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah, it's a couple yeah. hours. Just yeah. let me know when you're in town, and I'll show you around. Yeah, I'd
1: love to, and love to take your tour. I mean, you guys have that going right now, right?
2: Yeah, we do it um, uh, March through November, seven days a week, every night, um, and then in the off season, we do them as well. But yeah, so, so we- this
1: is like a this is a, like a, a paranormal kind of tour that you guys do.
2: Yeah, in the evening, we do a haunted history uh, tour, uh, 7.30 and 9.15. And then during the daytime, we do history and architecture walks as well.
1: Um, What I'm wondering is also, um, are any of the houses open for tours themselves? I mean, you have any historic homes that are open for
2: tours? Yeah, uh, Conrad's Castle that I mentioned is, that is the only one in the neighborhood that operates as a historic house that's open to the public and officially it's called the Conrad Caldwell House Museum and um, in the city itself, there's a number of um, historic homes open for tours. But in Old Louisville itself, uh, the Conrad Caldwell House Museum, the old um, the old uh, mansion where Theophilus Conrad lived in the 1890s, that's the only one that's open for regular tours. Throughout the year, there are special mansion tours, like where you get inside some of these places. And then there's like 10 or so bed and breakfasts. A lot of times you can go inside the bed and breakfast. But as far as an actual home that like operates as a museum to welcome uh, tourists, that would be the Conrad Caldwell House, which is one of the most popular attractions in the whole city.
1: Got you. It's a beautiful segue, by the way. So you do have that in your book. Um, Yeah. Let's talk talk about about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's one of our more famous haunted places. Yeah. Tell us what's going on there. So uh, shows like Ghost Hunters have been there. Um, It's got a reputation for being haunted. Nothing too freaky, nothing too scary. But last I heard, there's like six entities that have been documented on the premises. Uh, Only two families live there. And so there's ghosts that supposedly come from both of the families. And then after World War II for a number of years, it was kind of an upscale uh, retirement home for Presbyterian women. And so there's some old lady ghosts that kind of linger from those days, but there's supposedly six different entities that have been documented on the premises. And even though there's six different ghosts, um, the one I always hear about is uh, a kind of spirit that tends to appear to people like me and by people like me. I don't mean people who like old houses and creepy stuff, you know, I mean people who sign up for one of their tours and they're told not to wander off from the group, but they wander off from the group, you know, and they're told not to try to get into rooms that are off limits and see what's in closets and cupboards and drawers. So nosy people, they wander off and uh, they find themselves someplace where they shouldn't be. And they say, out of nowhere, this little man materializes and he looks like he's from the 1890s, maybe. Um, you know, 1893, 1894, 95, when the house was built. And he, he always wears a a dark, uh, like a brown tweed suit, typical of the 1890s. And he's got a goatee. And he always uh, is wearing a bowler hat. And people report he just kind of appears out of nowhere and he never says anything though he just fixes the offenders with a very stern glare and then he kind of raises his hand over his head and he looks up and he kind of you know shakes his finger like he's scolding them and then he disappears into thin air and Uh, Over the years, a dozen people have gotten in touch with me after taking tours and saying that happened to them on the tours. And it was always the same, you know, circumstances. They were always someplace where they shouldn't have been. You know, they were all snooping around. Uh, And always it's the same description. You know, the little man in the brown tweed suit with the goatee and the bowler hat. And uh, always at the end of the tour, these people are kind of startled because they look up and on a far wall, they see an oil portrait hanging there. And it's a man in a brown tweed suit, and he's got a goatee and a bowler hat. And they say, oh, that's the man we just saw. And uh, the docents who work at the museum, they're kind of used to, you know, it happens a lot. So they usually take that opportunity to tell more about, you know, who the man in the picture is. And it's, it's Mr. Conrad, the man who built the house. Um, Conrad, as he was known came from France in the years before the Civil War, and he made uh, a fortune as a leather tanner in the city of Louisville. And By the end of the century, he was one of the wealthiest men in the region, so the house that sits at 1402 St. James Court, you know, Conrad's Castle. Uh, He still has family in Louisville, and some of his descendants have come on tours with me, and uh, they shared lots of stories about him. And uh, it seems like Conrad, uh, he was kind of the neighborhood curmudgeon. He was always, you know, getting in fights with his neighbors and suing them, and uh, always yelling at kids to get off his grass. And uh, when his descendants hear the alleged uh, instances of his haunting antics in the the mansion, they they're not surprised. They said it sounds just like their fam- uh, their famous ancestor because. They said in real life, Conrad was always known to be a notorious control freak. They uh think he's probably a control freak in the afterlife as well. You know, he's got people traipsing through the mansion all the time on tours. That probably drives him crazy. And then in addition, he's got five ghosts that co haunt the place. So uh his family also But who said-
1: who are the ghosts that, that haunt the uh, haunt the uh, property as well? I mean, family or former so residents as or
2: as far as his family, he's the only one from his family that haunts, but supposedly um, the second family that lived there, the Caldwells, um, Mr. Caldwell, who was often banished to the smoking balcony outside because his wife hated smoking, uh, especially cigars, on the inside of the mansion. His ghost is one that's been seen as well as their daughter, Grace, uh, who has a beautiful uh, oil portrait of her hanging in the front parlor so that that would be three supposedly there's um the ghost of a former housekeeper who's kind of a protective spirit and when ever anything bad is about to happen she kind of shows up to let people know they got to close the windows or go check the front door. and then from the 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 days it was the rosanna hughes um A Presbyterian ladies home they're supposedly like a group of three old ladies they've seen it's always in a group three old ladies kind of hunched and walking together that they've seen those are the ones that I've heard of
1: and and so I mean this is the only home you said that's actually open for historical visitation um have you heard these stories from the people that work there or just visitors or
2: yeah well uh it was a former director when I was writing my first book who she's the one that told me about the housekeeper and um some strange things she had had happen like things moving and just kind of weird things so she was the one that kind of turned me on to the different stories then talking to people who had taken tours there you know once people found out i was writing a book people got in touch and they uh, started sharing a lot of their stories and then um that's that's when i started hearing about the Conrad ghost appearing over and over again, and his family, the ones I've talked to, they said uh, Conrad was really, really short, like he was under five foot, and they think he, you know, he suffered from short man syndrome, and he carried himself with this gruff demeanor all the time to kind of make up for his short stature. But um, his family, his descendants, I've talked to, you know, the family lore says. Uh, he was very small, but he never would back down from a fight. He loved confrontation. He loved uh, telling people off and scolding them. But he was always so short when he scolded people, he tended to have to lean back and kind of look up to make eye contact with them. So that kind of fits in with how the apparition often appears. It's often leaning back, like looking up into the, you know, in into the sky or something, or maybe you know someone someone who's taller than he is looking into their eyes. Look
1: out, yeah. N- never, <laughs> never verbally hearing anything or anything. Nope. Never oh, says okay, anything.
2: Yeah. Just appears and, and goes sh- through the gesture and scolds people. And that's it. That's funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's one of the, it's one of the funnier stories. Yeah. Uh, a good thing is about old Louisville, there's some creepy stories, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of them are kind of forlorn ghosts. Like, you know, unrequited love. There's a tragic story, uh, one of the most famous ones. There's a huge neoclassical church at the corner of 3rd and Ormsby, and uh, it's the location of what many consider the most famous case of haunting in the neighborhood. It's definitely the most tragic as well, but it involves um, a ghost that looks like it's a lovely 18, 19-year-old woman Um, She's lovely and statuesque, and this church has kind of a a Grecian portico entrance, so there's these massive 13 columns that flank the entrance, and they always see this ghost. It's usually in the evening, usually after dark when it's cold, and they always see this lovely uh, ghost pacing back and forth at the columns. Uh, She's lovely, like I said, statuesque, but she's uh, a sad, forlorn kind of ghost because you'll often hear her sobs echo down. Uh, The sidewalks in the neighborhood and always she wears kind of a long flowing white gown because when you're a female ghost What do you need to wear? You know a long flowing white gown, right? She's kind of a stereotypical ghost, but in old Louisville, they love her. They call her the lady of the stairs and people have reported sightings of her you know back a hundred years ago already and What we were able to piece together is this ghost they call the lady of the stairs is someone who lived In the neighborhood back in the day and they called her Miss G so the G uh, stood for Gathright they were one of the prominent local families uh, in the neighborhood and Miss G's part of the clan they came from Bartstown which is a half hour south of Louisville it's like the old Bourbon capital and they said in 1918 Miss G uh, graduated high school she finished her studies and uh, her parents were having Financial issues, and they were on the verge of bankruptcy. The only way they could escape bankruptcy was to marry their uh, one lovely daughter off into a wealthy distilling family. But there was a problem: there was only one man available for marriage in their town at the time, and that was an elderly widower, many many years older than Miss G. And of course, he thought that was a pretty good idea, and uh, Miss G's parents were okay with it. Miss G wasn't so excited about the match with this older man. And the reason for that was she was in love with somebody else already. So um, it was 1918, you know, World War One was raging. And the reason there were no young men in town is they had all you know signed up and they were fighting in the war in Europe. Well, Miss G uh, had fallen in love with the dashing young soldier and he had earned some leave. He came back to town. They were hoping to get married on the sly. Um. Before they had a chance, the young soldier received a telegram telling him he had to come back and join the regiment right away. So he promised his beloved Mishji that when the war ended, he'd come back and get her, and then they'd be married. Well, when the parents got wind of this, they weren't happy that was going to thwart their plans. So they sent their uh, daughter away from town so she wouldn't be there when the soldier returned. And they sent her to Louisville because on Millionaire's Road, just a block down from the church, Uh, there was a wealthy aunt and uncle that she could stay with and they would kind of chaperone her. Uh, What nobody knew, though, was that when the war ended in November of 1918 and the young soldier was finally discharged, he found out if he re-enlisted in the army right away Uh, He could have his choice of postings across the country at different bases, and he could have a lucrative career as an officer. And that included being posted at the largest military base in the country, which back then was Camp Zachary Taylor, and that was in Louisville. It was just a couple miles away from where Miss G was living, actually. So he took that post knowing that would bring him closer than ever to his beloved because they had kept in touch. And it actually proved easy for the lovebirds to meet because Miss G's aunt and uncle weren't the strict chaperones the parents had been hoping for. They were letting their niece go out unescorted at times. And uh, every night after dinner, she'd leave through their front door and she'd say, I'll see you later, aunt and uncle. I'm going down to Amorty's to see my girlfriends. And Amorty's was a famous ice cream parlor that stood on a corner right across from the huge um, First Church of Christ scientist. And to her credit, Uh, She wasn't lying. It was the place where all the young people hung out back in the day. And Mishji was going and seeing her girlfriends, but she'd only uh, see them for a few minutes. And then she'd excuse herself, and she would rush back to the steps of the church and go up to the columns, pace back and forth. Because back in the day, those steps were like the rendezvous spot for all the young sweethearts in the neighborhood. And any given night, there'd be dozens and dozens of couples up there rendezvousing and that's where Miss G and her boyfriend would meet every night like clockwork. And so a a month went by like this, another month. Eventually, though, Miss G and her boyfriend grew tired of sneaking around, and uh, they decided it was just time for them to run away and elope. So they met on a Thursday night, and they decided the next night it would be time for them to carry out the plan that they had been hatching. And the plan was to meet at their normal time at the steps of the church, but then go down Town Louisville to uh, Union Station, get the overnight train that went to Chicago, and there the young man had family they could hide out with. They'd get married and then break the news to everybody, and they'd have to deal with it. So the next night rolled around. It was Friday night, time for them to run away. At the ice cream parlor, people knew something was up right away because Miss G arrived with a suitcase swinging at her side. And uh, just like today, back then in old Louisville, everybody knew everyone else's business. And before long, people began kind of talking and they quickly put two and two together but nobody said anything to miss and nobody tried to stop her and so uh, after seeing her friend she excused herself and quickly ran back to the steps of the church went up to the columns and started pacing back and forth waiting for her would-be fiance but uh, there was no sign of him and she G- Kept pacing back and forth, and still he hadn't shown. Eventually, you know, the evening wore on, it grew colder, darker. All the other couples began drifting away. And in the wee hours of the morning, it was just Miss G up there pacing back and forth in the chill night air. Well, right before daybreak, uh, some late night partygoers were uh, walking by on the sidewalk. And one of them was a friend of hers. He uh, looked up and he saw her. He said, Hey, Miss G, why, why are you out so late? What's going on? and she told her friend she was waiting for someone and her friend offered to wait with her and she said oh don't worry about me he's got to be here soon enough you go on you know with your friends and don't worry about me and so he said all right we'll see you later he continued down Street with his friends but then down on the next block he told his friends he didn't feel right leaving miss g all alone so they went on without him and he rushed back to the steps so he could wait with her and he got back to the steps right as the sun was coming up and he He looked up and he was kind of startled because Mishji was no longer there. And so he ran up the steps to the columns. He looked behind the columns. There was no sign of her. There were little alcoves back there. He looked in the alcoves. There was no sign of her. So he assumed in those several minutes that had gone by, the boyfriend must have shown up and they were probably going to try to get the morning train that went to Chicago. And uh, so that was that, or so people thought. So that day passed. But when darkness fell that next night, People were kind of surprised when they looked up, and at the steps of the church, there they saw Miss G in her normal spot at the columns, pacing back and forth. This time, people said she looked different. She was sickly. She was pale. When people tried to talk to her, it was like she was in a trance. She couldn't see or hear anybody. She just paced slowly back and forth, sad and forlorn, trance-like. And the same thing happened all night long. She paced back and forth until she was the only one there. When the sun went up the next day, though, she was gone. Until the next night, the same thing happened. There she was again, pacing back and forth, sad and forlorn. But this next night, people said you could hear Miss G's sobs echoing down the sidewalks. And so people began asking around, saying, "You know What's going on with Miss G? Why is she so sad? What's she crying about? She won't talk to anybody. Well, they found out why she was sad the next day when the Monday morning paper came out, and they were able to read about what happened at Camp Zachary Taylor over the weekend. So this is kind of um, timely. It would bring us to early 1919 now, and it's when one of the deadly waves of the Spanish flu hit. And estimates vary, but it was as many as 1,500 soldiers at the, the camp who died. And the day they were supposed to elope, the young soldier had come down with the Spanish flu. So he was quarantined with hundreds of others on the base in their barracks. Uh, he had packed his bags and he was planning to leave. And when the time came, he grabbed his bag and he tried to leave the barracks, but they you know, caught him. They returned him to his bed. And all night long, the young soldier kept getting up with his bag and trying to sneak out through an open window to go to his beloved. Eventually, they tired of having to return him to his bed, and they just tethered him down so he couldn't rise. And he tried to explain, you know, his girlfriend was out there in the cold. Someone had to go to her. She was waiting. But by that point, the soldier was delirious and he was incoherent. Nobody understood what he was talking about until it was way too late. And so the sad thing is the word never made it back to Ms. G that first night. All night long, she paced back and forth in the chill night air. She finally did give up and go home at daybreak, you know, when the sun went up. She returned to her aunt and uncles, but she returned kind of heartbroken. She thought she'd been abandoned at the last minute. Uh, What's really sad, though, is she returned. She contracted the flu as well that same day. And the saddest part of the story is two days later, both Miss G and her boyfriend were dead, and they went to their graves, never finding out what happened to the other
1: that's crazy oh that's sad that's really sad sad.
2: so they say her sad ghost is still there just pacing back and forth waiting for him to show up and take her away and until he does we have her the lady of the stairs in old louisville our most romantic our most tragic ghost story and on the tour uh, when people visit and stuff that's one of the places people will take pictures and a lot of strange
1: well that's what i was going to ask you has anybody captured her in any photographs or anything
2: yeah well um People have said they've captured apparitions. I haven't seen any of those photographs. But what I think is funny is, um, you know, we show hundreds of people around every week. And so people are always sending me pictures and I never tell them, you know, what is common, what what is normal for people to capture on film. But if they share something with me, it's always the same thing. And it's always uh, a big white or whitish blue orb of light that they see bouncing kind of under the rafters and it's a big orb it's like a basketball size orb of light and i've probably seen 20 25 pictures of people who've captured this you know big orb of bright blue light and you know the paranormal world you know white and blue that's good light you don't want the the red and orange stuff usually um so it seems like if she's still there you know it's a benevolent kind of spirit, like I said, kind of a sad, forlorn kind of wraith that paces back and forth on the steps.
1: There, I want to go back to you because I kind of <laughs> let you slide and I was my mind was on something else. But you said that, you know, when you lived in that home um, where you were having some things go on, that you actually saw some things move around. Uh-huh. Um, Can can you tell us about some of the phenomena that you personally witnessed?
2: Yeah, so uh, when I come back on and talk about the other book, that's like the whole chapter. Uh, that's a whole book about what happened in my house, all the crazy things. Oh, it is okay. But, don't tell me. Yeah, but but let me,
1: but let me tell you one <laughs> thing.
2: But, you know, all this weird stuff happened, and people, um, it was happening, and people told me I was in ghost denial. You know, that I just wasn't admitting that my house was haunted. I was trying to ignore it, and so every time weird things happened, I would. I would try to rationalize it you know look for the most you know logical explanation and so this is um a point in that book where we kind of solve the mystery of who the the poltergeist was so i won't tell you that we'll talk about that next time but um we had workers uh on the second floor of the house at one time they had painted all the hardwood floors and carpeted over them so we spent several months with workers pulling up the old carpet and sanding the floors and getting the hardwood floors back and so the workers um they were kind of finishing up the the very last room at the back of the house on the second floor and um yeah i don't want to tell this part either because that's kind of uh, a okay don't of, no you don't have to of a spoiler but the good part is we were kind of inspecting things, making sure everything was okay before they they put on a, a coat of um, polyurethane, you know, and they were getting ready to seal the floors. And so the room was looking great. I was, you know, they weren't even done with the floors, and I was trying to decorate, you know, and put things in. And I had just the day before um, polished the mantle, and I'd put a big, uh, a two and a half foot uh, painted art pottery vase from Vienna from 1905. I put it on the mantle. And as I was standing there with the two workers, you know, we're kind of, you know, surveying the room, making sure everything was okay. All of a sudden that mantle um, where the, the, the vase was all of a sudden the vase started sliding down to one end. So it just started moving slowly. It kept sliding, sliding, (laughs) sliding, (laughs) sliding, like, It slid for three feet until it came to the edge of the shelf and then it stopped like if it had gone another half an inch it would have toppled over the the side of the shelf and i just kind of um i didn't say anything i just kind of you know looked at the others out of the you know side of my eye and uh they didn't say anything either and for like just a minute or two we all three just stood there. and We didn't say anything. And finally, one of the guys said, because you saw that, did you? And I said, yeah, because they were the ones telling me strange things was were going on. And um, so so, so you know,
1: while they were in your house and doing whatever work, they were
2: they experiencing were, some things. Too. Yeah, they were experiencing things all the time. They were the kind of like the first ones that kind of complained about weird things going on in the house. And so the thing is, I just polished that mantle the other day. So, you know, like I said, I was always trying to rationalize things. And so I thought, oh, well, I, I just oiled that mantle yesterday. So I went and got a level and guess what? It was one degree off in that direction and had just been, you know, polished. So it was smooth. So theoretically, that's kind of, that could be an explanation for it. But the thing is, yeah, I but put, did,
1: did you try to do it again? Like, yes,
2: it- I, I right away. I put I put that mantle. I put the the vase, the mantle base back where it was and i tried to nudge it i i got a fan i tried to blow on it we tried everything it never moved it was just that one time wow yeah so things like that um
1: that didn't unnerve you or anything it did <laughs> i had to i, I mean it, it, I I was also, to, you like, and two like, other people saw it happening
2: so. yeah my mm-hmm. my friend said i was in ghost denial um but like I said I was always trying to look for something to rationalize the strange things that were happening. That's normal. And, yeah, that's you know, it's normal. like, you know, a, a a frog in a a pot of water, you you heat it up, the frog just stays there and you know boils because it gets used to it, you know. And so it's that same kind of thing. If you're in the middle of that kind of activity, you know, you kind of get used to it. And when you look back on it, then it seems a little different, you know, hindsight's 2020, but like when you're in the middle of it all, you're explaining it away or coming up, you know, with reasons why it just can't happen. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's what happened with me.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, that is normal. You know, people just blow things off and, and kind of say, you know, I didn't see that or my eyes are playing tricks on me or whatever. So that's totally (laughs) normal. Um, but that's really, that's, that's pretty creepy. Um, I want to, there's a couple other places I want to get through to uh, ask you about in your book. And one of those is the Jenny Cassidy infirmary. Where is that exactly? And I want to know, have you actually been there?
2: Um, I've been in it and it's, um, it's actually kind of behind the Conrad Caldwell house museum. Uh, so it's on sixth street. It's, on the 1400 block of 6th street and it's named for um a woman uh by the name of jenny cassidy she was quite a figure um her she came from a wealthy family and when she was a young woman she had a carriage accident in downtown louisville and she was thrown from the carriage and she ended up paralyzed so the rest of her life she was in a wheelchair But she didn't let um, this impede her. She started this um, uh, charity movement, and she kind of took on the cause of underprivileged women in the neighborhood um, as, you know, her charity. And she started uh, a series of, like, holiday camps for young working women back in the day, before people did stuff like that. And then um, when she died in the 1890s she was so beloved in the city for all the great things she had done and she really left her mark on the city that her friends got together and they bought um, they bought a place that had been an infirmary uh, they think it was already probably built in the 1860s already and they rehabbed it and they renamed it the Jenny Cassidy free infirmary for women and so it was specifically for impoverished women um women uh, who were unwed mothers and up through i think the 60s it served as a hospital in some capacity or other from the 30s on it was the um the neuropathy clinic but uh, eventually an architect bought it and he so there's the main building, and then there was like the nurse's residence next to it. They they both are covered in gray uh, Georgia slate. It's a really unique-looking building, it has white wood trim. And uh so eventually it was all turned into residences. So I met a man who uh lived there in one of the apartments. I so I'm going to go back because it was actually um, by the time World War I rolled around, they turned it into residences already. Um, so take that back, what I said about the 60s. Yeah, in the years uh, 40s and 50s, there were already people living there. They had turned it into apartments. So I met this guy. Um, this is when I was working on my first book. And he was, you know, he was quite old. This would have been like 19... 19- Well, 99 to like 2003, that was kind of when I was working on that first book. And I was at a local coffee shop. I had my dogs uh, tied up outside. I came out and there this old man was petting my dogs. And we got to talking. And uh, this is when I was kind of, you know, just talking to people in the neighborhood, trying to get them to share stories. And uh, he kind of brought up the Jenny Cassidy Free Infirmary for Women. I mean, only the old timers knew that that's what it was at one time. You know, people just thought it was a place to live. But uh, I said, oh, I've always wondered about that place. You know, it seems like such a unique building. It's just it's a beautiful building and it's got, you know, I know it was a hospital of some kind or other for many years. I said, you know anything about that? He says, oh, I sure do. And it uh, turns out he had lived in one of the the apartments. And uh, so I said, oh, let's sit down and talk. And so we sat down for the next couple hours and he told me all the crazy stuff that happened when he lived in um, his apartment there. So I forgot his name. I wish I remembered his name. But um, what, what was he saying happened to him? So he had just come back. Uh, World War II had ended and he had just come back and he was studying at the university nearby and his studies were kind of interrupted because of the war. So he had one uh, he had one year to go before he got his degree. So he was renting a couple rooms in what was the Jenny Cassidy Free Infirmary for Women while he was finishing up his last year's studies. And so what he said is um, he had a pretty set routine. You know, He'd go to classes during the day, and then he'd do his homework and stuff at night. He'd make dinner. He said he didn't go out very often. Uh, he said if he got his homework done and he was feeling up to it, he'd turn on the radio. It was like, you know, big, like Victrola radio, you know, think 1940s. And this big radio that stood in the corner, and he'd listen to the radio and, you know, read a little before uh, he went to bed. And so he said uh, one night he uh, had gone to bed and he woke up in the middle of the night because he could see light coming through the crack uh, under the door, you know, to his bedroom. And he had turned off all the lights. He thought he must have forgotten something. And so he got up and he went out and uh, next to that radio was a big floor lamp and he said it was on and. He went and you know pulled a string on it. He turned it off and he turned uh, to go back into his bedroom. When he turned around, the light came back on. And so he went and turned it off again. When he turned around and walked out of the room, the light came back on again. Well, he realized something wasn't working, so he unplugged the lamp, turned around to go to bed, and the lamp came back on again, even though it wasn't plugged in. And uh, he knew something wasn't quite right. And then all of a sudden he started, um, he said like this weird mist kind of filled up the room like a cloud or something. And he said the radio started kind of flickering on and off. And he started hearing like this moaning sound, like maybe a woman in pain or something. It was just like this disembodied, a uh, painful scream, this, moan that came from this like cloud of mist that kind of started to fill up uh, his living room and he just stood there and he said the the mist just kept coming and then he said it started to rain inside of his living room uh raindrops started to fall from the ceiling i guess all the oh, contents my goodness. Wow. yeah and so he um he went and jumped uh under the covers and just tried to ignore this thing but um, he said the more he ignored it, it was like the more insistent uh, the noises and the groaning and the moaning got. And he said the next couple nights, the same thing happened. The lamp and the radio would come on, even though they weren't plugged in. And if he went out there, he said this weird mist would kind of fill up his living room and he'd hear moaning and groaning. And it would always start to rain inside his living room. And the last night uh, it happened, he said... Wait. He was kind of concentrating on where the the moaning sound was coming from and he said he could vaguely discern in the the mist in the clouds a form of what looked like maybe a woman standing there like reaching her hand out or something and when he started to see things that's when he got really nervous you know so the next day he went um to his church he went to a catholic church just several blocks down on uh 6th street it's called st louis bertrand catholic church a beautiful church like from the 1850s and 60s and he asked uh the priest father joe who was kind of a friend of the family you know it's the one who had baptized him and he had grown up with him as the priest he asked if he'd come check the place out because he assumed yeah Something had to be going on, you know, of a paranormal nature. Maybe a priest could take care of things. And um, the priest was kind of reluctant. He said, you know, we don't really do that stuff anymore. And it's very rare that, you know, there's real haunting stuff going on. But um, this this old guy, or he was a young guy back then, he insisted. And finally the priest said, okay, he said, where do you live? And... Um, and the guy said well you know i just live a couple blocks down and uh so the priest grabbed his satchel and stuff and he said all right let's go and uh they started walking down to what is the Jenny Cassidy Free Infirmary for Women and as uh the guy uh, opened the gate the big wrought iron gate and started walking up the front uh walkway the priest father joe just kind of stopped and said oh you live here You should have told me you lived here. And uh, he said, I've been here before. And it turns out that the priest had uh, made many calls to that location when it was the infirmary, because he often was called to administer last rites to women uh, who were dying in childbirth. And it turns out the the young guy, the ex-soldier, his apartments uh, were in the old maternity ward of the Jenny Cassidy Free Infirmary for Women. And the priest said he had uh, come and administered last rites to quite a number of women who died in that area. And so he went in uh, with um, the guy and he pulled out all his stuff and crucifix and he started going through kind of a you know, a cleansing, uh, kind of a prayer of blessing. And the guy said, as the priest was praying, he said, all the stuff kind of happened that was happening before the floor lamp went on, the radio went on. Even though they weren't plugged in, this weird mist kind of filled up the room. It started to rain and they started to hear the moaning and groaning. And this time, um, the young soldier said he could make out the figure of the woman in the mist more so than he could on... The previous occasion and he said he could see a face and it was like she was kind of moaning in pain and screaming and she was kind of reaching out her arm and all of a sudden he said just like that he got the sense that this was one of the women who had died in childbirth and he said he took it upon himself to try to communicate with her like telepathically and he said you know you know don't worry your child is uh, fine uh, everything's gonna be fine you know you don't need to be here anymore and with that, he said, um, the mist kind of evaporated, it cleared out of the room. The priest finished saying his prayers and such, and um, he never had any problem with that stuff happening in his apartment anymore. The radio on the lamp going on, the moaning and groaning, it all stopped from that point forward.
1: Did he say, okay, this is so amazing. This is so amazing. The fact that it started raining inside his apartment. Did he say, uh, did he relay anything to you about what the, what the priest said it may have been or the reason? Was it, was it, the, was it, did he think it was purely the spirit that was, you know, died, died during childbirth birth, or was it something evil? I mean, what in the world would cause all that phenomenon to happen?
2: well the sense i got was that it was like maybe the collective you know all the women who had died and suffered in that area um yeah he was convinced it was women who had died in childbirth and he didn't know if he was it was just one particular woman or maybe like she was representative of all the spirits associated with that place but one funny thing um that happened is So I had that, which, you know, that's creepy in and of itself. But I mentioned, you know, a couple of years ago, I took my, my first three books and I kind of edited and updated them, put them in this book that we're talking about right now, True Ghost Stories and Eerie Legends from America's Most Haunted Neighborhood. Well, like I said, one of the reasons I did that is because over time, people were getting in touch with me and sharing information, you know, a lot of corroborating information. About family members and people they knew associated with these reported cases of hauntings so as I was just getting ready to put out that book I got an interesting email from a woman in California and it turns out her aunt had been a patient at that hospital in the 20s and in the 20s and 30s that's when it was the Louisville neuropathy clinic and basically um you know, back then, if you were a woman and you didn't toe the line, you know, if you if you didn't comport, uh, you know, you were hysterical, and you know, they could put you away for things like that. And it turns out, you know, women who, you know, today we'd probably just say were headstrong back then, or maybe they were suffering postpartum depression or some kind of, you know, depression. Um, a lot of them ended up in that uh, place. And this woman got in touch with me because her aunt uh, actually hung herself while she was a patient there. And she hung herself in that guy's, what would have been his living room where all the the rain happened and the other stuff. And she sent me pictures of the woman, her death certificate showing it was a suicide, where the body was found and everything. And uh, subsequent to that, I had other people who had lived in that building, you know, when it was apartments, they told me they had seen what appeared to be an apparition of a woman hanging from the ceiling on several occasions. So it kind of comes in from different angles when we are talking about this, this supposed haunting. So there could be several, you know, different causes.
1: Amazing. That is truly amazing. Um, and what is it now?
2: It's, it's still apartments. Uh, the people, I've talked to the people who live there recently, nothing Nothing that I've heard of to to worry about, but some people know it as a haunted place. I think the last person I talked to who said they had anything weird happen was like in the late 80s. But um, yeah, the person who owns it, he said it's not haunted.
1: Got you. Man, that that was a great one. Um, uh, One thing I have noticed like from your story so far that you've told me, I haven't noticed you actually saying that any of these houses or locations actually drove people out of them? I mean, are there any stories of houses in that area where people have moved in and out because of the, you know, the ph- phenomena is so is so bad? Um,
2: not that I can think of, like I said, most of the, the hauntings I've uncovered, the spirits are kind of benign. Um,
1: Nothing where, uh, um, like, let me see, nothing where like familiar side has actually happened in any of the houses. I know that's bad, but you know, that's, that happens more and more. And I, I yeah. I'm sure it wasn't prevalent back then, but any places like that murder houses that are haunted? Well,
2: there's the one murder house and that's the subject of my newest. I know
1: movie. we're going to talk about it. Don't,
2: hey, don't talk tell about that, that. one. That, <laughs> that, that's the whole, yeah, that's, that house kind of has a reputation for being a destroyer of lives. Wow. It seemed mm-hmm. like every three, four years whoever moved in disaster would would find them somehow mm. and financial ruin or catastrophic illness or a terrible accident. Um, I mean, there's a number of you know murders and things, um, ghosts associated with murders and things, but as far as actual entities, kind of being threatening to people i mean i've heard some stories but i'm talking about the stories where I actually dug up records and you know right. have some kind right. of historical background that i could connect it to something in the past i can't really think of any place like where it runs people out um like i said for the most part they seem pretty benign actually a lot of the spirits are helpful there's a famous um a place called the pink palace and it's on saint james court it's kind of on the opposite end of where conrad's castle is and it's a big uh it's a big house with a huge uh, tower and it's painted pink so they call it the pink palace and they have a ghost uh that they call avery and he's supposedly a helpful spirit he's you know, some in the paranormal world would say he's a crisis apparition. You know, he turns up in times of danger to warn people that something bad is about to happen. So he's, you know, a helpful spirit. If you have to have a ghost in your house, I say that's probably the kind you always want. And uh, he's always described the same way. He's an aristocratic Southern gentleman. He's tall and stately. He wears kind of a white duck suit. And if you don't know what that is, that's what Colonel Sanders used to, to wear. And uh, Colonel Sanders is buried here in Louisville in Cave Hill Cemetery. It's a big tourist attraction for a lot of people. But um, for a time, like a lot of the places in old Louisville, the Pink Palace was turned into apartments, and that's when it acquired a reputation for being a haunted place. Uh, There was a woman, I still talk to her today, her name um, is Jenny. and. In the 60s she was renting out the basement apartment there while she was finishing up her last year studying to be a librarian at the university and she's the kind that said she never ever would have believed in ghosts until it happened to herself one night and so what she said happened it was december 1968 it was a cold saturday night she was on christmas break she was down uh, in the kitchen baking cookies to take to a christmas party and she just had one tray of cookies left she reached down opened the oven door and despite the hot air and steam you know that escaped she said all of a sudden she could tell the room was freezing cold and she stood up and her breath was puffing out in front of her face you know in clouds that's how cold the room became just like that and that's when she felt like a weird like an icy wind at her back and then she got this strange feeling like there was a pair of eyes watching her and Jenny slowly turned around, she put the cookies on the counter, and five feet away, she saw this tall man in a white suit staring at her intently. She knew it had to be a ghost. she said, because she could see through him to the cabinets on the other side. And uh, she didn't know what to do, you know, scream, run away. Before she had a chance to react, the apparition disappeared, and that's when she uh, heard a voice say, my name is Avery. And she said when she heard the spirit identify itself, she all of a sudden wasn't afraid. She could tell he wasn't there to do her harm. She was kind of bothered. She wanted to call a friend and tell her what had happened, but she decided against it. She said her friend was the kind who'd make fun of her, tell her she was going crazy for seeing ghosts. And Jenny didn't want to be ridiculed, so she vowed then and there she'd never talk about what happened. So she calmed down eventually, and uh, she looked at her watch. She had an hour to go before this party started, so she decided to take a bath and get ready. And her bathroom was right below the big tower, and she had this big cast iron Victorian clawfoot bathtub. Uh, she filled it up with hot water, put in bubble bath, and you know decided to jump in and kind of soak and relax for a bit, which sounds fine and good to me, except uh, Jenny did something I wouldn't have done had I just seen a ghost. Uh, she lit a candle and turned off all the lights in the bathroom and lay there in the dark and she said she became drowsy she felt herself nodding off to sleep and that's when she realized the room was freezing cold she opened her eyes wide and there her breath was puffing out in a cloud in front of her face she felt like a cold wind skip across the surface of the bath water and then she got that feeling like there was a pair of eyes trained on her and she slowly turned her head to the side and who was standing right there at the edge of the bathtub there was Avery in his white suit, staring intently. Well, this time, Jenny freaked out. She jumped up from the tub, shrieked. She threw on her bathrobe, and no sooner had she pulled her foot from the hot water, she heard this terrible crashing noise. And something came flying through the air, and it landed in a bathtub, uh, splashed water up all over, and then the bathtub broke into pieces and fell apart on the floor. And Jenny looked up and she saw a nearby window was broken out. She didn't know what to do, so she ran, called the police. Minutes later, the police arrived. And uh, when they arrived that cold Saturday night in December of 1968, they interrupted a burglary in progress. It turns out right um, across from the Pink Palace, there were some hedges and two uh, would-be burglars were kind of crouched down in the bushes. They had kind of been casing the joint. They were watching... Uh, all night long as people were leaving their apartments, you know, going out and having fun on a Saturday night, turning the lights out behind them as they left. So little by little, the place was going dark. Well, when Jenny turned off her bathroom light, that was the very last light to go out in the building and the burglars assumed it was empty. So one of them had found a big chunk of broken sidewalk and he picked up the slab of concrete, walked over and through it through the nearest window as a way of breaking in. And of course, that was Jenny's bathroom window. It landed in the very spot her head was resting. She said, had she not gotten out two seconds before she would have been killed.
1: Wow! Mm.
2: And that started the reputation of him being a helpful spirit. And it's happened over the years like that. Um, the thing is, even after all that, Jenny kept her vow not to talk about what happened just for fear of being ridiculed. But, uh, She kept that vow for 30 years, and then one day she was at the library, and someone brought in this big cardboard box um, that their family had been uh, keeping, and it was old newspaper articles from like 100 years before, but they they kept articles that had to do with every neighborhood in the city, and every neighborhood had its own file. And Jenny saw that the biggest file was the one that said St. James Court, you know, which is where the Pink Palace is located. And so she opened it to see what was inside, and the very top article caught her eye because there was a black and white photograph of what was the Pink Palace back then. And so she pulled out this article. It was from 1893, talking about the family that had just moved in. The family was having some challenges, it turns out, because they found out when the place was built uh, just a couple years before that there had been plans to have a broth- brothel there. And so, supposedly, the house had earned something of a tarnished reputation, and the family was struggling to convince people, you know, they were living in a respectable family home, not a house of ill repute. Well, Jenny thought it was kind of funny, but she stopped chuckling when she turned to the next page of the article, and there she found another black-and-white photograph waiting for her. But it wasn't of a building this time. There was a tall man in a white suit just standing there and staring out at her like he had all those years before. And uh, the caption said, Mr. Avery and his family have recently acquired the Old Gentleman's Club and they will call it home from now on. So it turns out there was an Avery. And uh, that's when Jenny, finally told her story, she got in touch with me and asked if I would help her find out more about that place. And so I took her to the courthouse. I showed her how to pull up property deeds and we took the deeds back as far as we could get them. And from what we can tell, it seems like the first family to reside there was the family of Benjamin Franklin Avery. And uh, Is there a picture
1: of him somewhere that we can see?
2: um, There is. I don't know. uh, I, I don't have it offhand, but there are pictures of him. If you do some online sleuthing. It's easy to find. But um, uh, it turns out there really wasn't Avery and his family, like Conrad's family, is still around today. Avery's great grandchildren have come on tours with me and shared stories about him, and he, was, um, he and his wife were pillars of the community. His wife was a famous suffragette. And they used to have meetings at the Pink Palace. And Avery, nine months out of the year, they said he preferred to wear his white duck suit. Every night after dinner, they'd stroll the court twice. That was kind of their evening ritual. But the people who knew Avery said he was a really good guy. Um, he was a nice neighbor. And what they remembered most about him was how much he loved his house and how protective he was of his property. So it seems kind of only fitting that his you know, spirit should linger on in the house, watching out for all those who come after him.
1: That, that was great. That was great. You tell really good ghost stories. I like how you do that. You get into it and I love it.
2: <laughs> I, I, I tell them the way I like to do it.
1: Yeah, that is awesome. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I want you to take a moment and tell my listeners where they can find out more information about you, David, or any other projects that you may be working on.
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm kind of switching over to fiction right now, but my um, 13th book just came out, got a good review in the New York Times. It's called The Dark Room in Glitterball City. You can find that. And my previous two books, um, Voodoo Days at La Casa Fabulosa, which is a memoir about the spooky house I lived, in, and then the book we talked about today, True Ghost Stories and Eerie Legends in America's Most Haunted Neighborhood. You can find those on Amazon.com. They're all on Audible as well. And uh, depending on your local bookstore um you probably can find those there as well. But uh, my website is daviddomine.com, D-A-V-I-D-D-O-M-I-N.com. D-A-V-I-D-D-O-M-I-N.com. Um, you can go to my um, agent's webpage and find out more about me, Spielberg Literary. Um, if you're in the neighborhood want to take a tour, Louisville Historic Tours is the tour company we have that shows off the spooky parts of the neighborhood at night and the historical and architectural highlights during the daylight hours. Right. Um, and you just uh, want to shoot me a line or something, go to Louisville historic tours. You can find my contact information and I always love hearing from people.
1: Very good. My special guest is David Domene and his book is called true ghost stories and eerie legends from America's most haunted neighborhoods. I will have the links to those. Uh, so you can purchase them off Amazon. David, many blessings to you, and I really appreciate your time.
2: Great. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle who brought this show to you today and working hard behind the scenes, our team of four. I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Find your perfect fit with a custom suit from Indochino. From timeless classics to bold statements, you can express your style exactly how you want. Get 10% off any purchase of $3.99 or more at indochino.com with code PODCAST.